The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Language is, is, is kind of a funny thing. Um, particularly, American English is unique because it's this amalgam of, of lots of different languages kind of all thrown into a blender and then spun around real good. Uh, and when we think about language, it, it, it's sometimes complicated to sort out. Probably one of the areas where we experience the complication of language is with the use of four-letter words. And these four-letter words are often shouted in the deepest expressions of the emotional state. Whether it's being cut off in traffic or spilling coffee on your shirt at the beginning of a work day, uh, these words are thrown that have multiple uses. What drives the meaning of these words is the context of their use. So the same four-letter word that might express um, a hatred for another driver might also express exclamation over having spilled coffee. Or it might express regret over something that just happened, a mistake that was made. It may also express delight. The same four-letter word that pronounces a curse upon those that are made in the image of God can also be used when encountering grief and the sudden loss of someone that is also made in the image of God. And this anomaly leads to a general sense of confusion about how or whether or not to use four-letter words at all. Now, I'm not advocating. But I, I do think it's interesting that it's a really good example of how words can have multiple meanings, a whole range of meanings. In fact, I was recently watching a video of a guy from Finland who was trying to sort out the English language. And, and he's talking about uh, how confusing it is to realize that some words have multiple things that they mean. And so he gives the example of the word tips. Okay? He says, so, so a tip might mean uh, like the point on a pencil or the end of a, a, a knife or, or, or the point on a spear. It might mean that. It also might mean advice, like you're, you're, you're helping someone out, giving them advice. It also can mean that uh, it, it's what you give as a compliment for services rendered. So if, you know, you get great service at a restaurant, you, you might give a tip as a consequence of that. And then he, he goes on to say, and what I recently discovered is that not all services are the same. So recently he says, I was pulled over and I tried to tip the police officer. And, and that's not technically a tip. That's a bribe. He says, this whole American thing is very confusing to me. Listen, no four-letter word is more confusing than the one that we're about to discuss today. On the one hand, it might describe the way that we feel about pizza. On the other hand, it may describe the deepest feelings we have about our family, our spouses, our children, and our friends. It may be used in a general sense as though it applies to everyone, and also, in a more specific and deeper sense, that it is applied to some and not others. Yet, it is the same four-letter word. Love. More than any other topic, this particular word is dividing, presently, our country. You say, well... How, how, do you, how do you say that? How is that true? Well, think about it. 
more than any other topic, what are people wrestling with in society? The big question on the minds of most people is how do we love best? How do we love best? So when it comes to, for example, the immigrant, somebody who's coming across the border, fleeing some terrible circumstance, and there's this intermixed crowd of of people who are both just trying to escape and flee somewhere and have a better life for themselves, and then also those that are hijacking that system and have some sort of, uh, you know, ulterior motive that is destructive or erosive in some way. How, How do we love those people? Or what about the LBTQ community? One of the big debates that's been raging for the last decade or so has been how do we best love a community that sees the world differently than we do? How, how do we, on the one hand, hold to certain values that, that deal with creation and order and the way that God has made things and design and at the same time love people who are sinning sexually in the same way that other people who are straight maybe sin sexually? How do we differentiate between the sins and and love people and and still hold to some, some semblance of morality and honoring God and his word? What about mothers and their unborn children? How do we best love them? knowing that children will be born into very hard circumstances and sometimes through very dire situations. How do we love them? And, and, and the right and the left are arguing over what is the most loving at the base level. They both understand that love is the ethic, but how to love is the mystery. This spreads into other areas like the elderly and caring for the poor and caring for the sick. And right now, one of the central issues that is splitting our country left and right is the issue of how do we love people well? So then, defining this four-letter word, defining love, becomes very important. So the myth that we are going to bust today is that God is love only. That God is love only. There is this understanding that God is love, and it's, it's sort of this universal concept. Even people who are not people of faith appeal to the idea that God is love, and they'll quote the golden rule, and they'll say, you know, the, the goal is for us to just be loving towards other people. That's what religion is supposed to promote, and that's what God, if he exists, really is, and, and so God is love, or you'll hear it in the Rastafarian uh, sector where, where people are always talking about Jah and, and how he is love and this, there's sort of this ethic of like embrace anything, love everyone, do nothing bad, never say anything bad, never confront other people. But is that love? More importantly, is that ki- the kind of love that God has? So people believe that God is only love. Now, where does that myth come from? Well, it's rooted in a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's rooted in philosophy. And second of all, it's rooted in Scripture. So we're going to get to Scripture, but I'm going to cover a little bit of philosophical ground with you. The Enlightenment had a profound effect on our perception of the world around us. During the Enlightenment, the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, became a sort of mantra. Now, you'll recognize it most likely from the Declaration of Independence, the words penned by Thomas Jefferson, where he said that we we have certain unalienable rights, 
the, the right for life, for liberty, and for the pursuit of happiness. Now, it's interesting, in case law, there's all kinds of cases that refer to that last part, the pursuit of happiness, and th th that appeal to that as an ethic for why freedoms in a country or in a society should be preserved, that people have a right to pursue a life of self-fulfillment. A guy named William Blackstone was a lawyer who wrote a book called Commentaries on the Laws of England. In part one of his introduction, Blackstone argues that the law of nature and of nature's God contain the fundamental principles by which the entire natural world, including, including animals and humans, is to be governed. So next he then argues that the pursuit of happiness is the primary method by which we can know and then apply, apply the law of nature as it pertains to humans. Men can readily, he says, discover what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life by considering what method will tend the most effectually to our own substantial happiness. So in other words, he reasoned, that we can know the way that God has designed things by pursuing self-fulfillment, self-gratification, um, and happiness. And then if we are generally pursuing that and, and not inhibiting the, the happiness of others, that we're going to be on, on good moral ground in the decisions that we make. He applied that not only religiously, but he applied it uh, legally to laws and ethics that should govern a society. Now, Blackstone was influenced by the Anglican preaching group, a group within the Anglican church that was called uh, the Latudinarians. Now, you don't need to remember that. But the Latudinarians tended to focus on the essential doctrines of Christianity. And to discover those doctrines, the Latudinarians argued for a new Newtonian epistemology. They, they said everything is sort of rooted, rooted in Newtonian uh, philosophy. And this epistemology was summarized by John Tillotson, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who argued that God has commanded us nothing in the gospel that is either unsuitable to our reason or prejudicial to our interests, nothing but what is easy to be understood and easy to be practiced by an honest and willing mind. And so they believed that the essential doctrines could be discovered through inductive reasoning applied to what they called the two books of theology, the book of Revelation, which was the scriptures, and the book of nature. And, and that meant man's own self-love or the pursuit of his own real and substantial happiness, that this was the truest guide to study. Now, this redefinition of love really shifted things during the Enlightenment. And it, and it penetrated every area of society. Uh, not just the Declaration of Independence, but also our understanding of how we are to relate to one another. If, if the goal in life, then, is the pursuit of happiness, then love is meant to be an emotionally fulfilling venture that increases my happiness. Okay, so prior to this time, love was talked about not in terms of emotional fulfillment, but in action, the action that we take towards others. But during the Enlightenment, everything flipped around. Instead of it being outward, it became this inward experience of, of how an action makes me feel as the person who loves, as the lover. This redefinition of love during the Enlightenment from love being an action of graciousness towards the object of love to being an inward experience of emotional satisfaction forever changed the landscape. Now think about its implications in marriage. Prior to this time, marriage was a commitment that you made to somebody else and then you followed through with love. A commitment to love them. You made a decision. You said, this is going to require self-sacrifice at times. This is going to require dying to myself. 
a whole bunch of times throughout life, but I'm going to pursue a loving action towards this other person. And that is the vow that I make on the day when I stand in the altar and offer myself to God and to this person. But during the Enlightenment, because love had been redefined to a personal fulfillment experience, all of a sudden, marriage is not about what I do towards somebody else. It's about what I receive as a consequence of this relationship. Now it's a utility towards my own happiness. You see the difference? You see how subtle that change is and how, how majorly it affects the outcome? So how we hear the word love in the present day then is different than how a person would have heard the word love prior to the Enlightenment. So now building upon that idea is another philosophical argument. And in some circles you will hear people say that love is the essential nature of God. And, and, and when they say that, we're, they're working from a post-enlightenment definition of what love is. They, they define it as love being the sort of self-satisfied self emotional state. And folks in this camp will reason something like this. They, they say, okay, now I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to, to think back before history, before matter, before particles and light before space, before time. Imagine, if you will, the great nothing. And in the middle of the great nothing is God, the self-existent one. Before there was space or matter or time itself, you can find God eternally existing within the fellowship of the Trinity. God is there, happy and content, needing nothing, and fully self-sufficient. There is no need for his justice. There is no need for his wrath. The only thing that God is experiencing in this perfected state is love. And they, again, they define that as an emotional state of happiness. All that he is experiencing within the fellowship of the Trinity is love. Therefore, love, they would say, is God's essential nature. That, he, that is the ethic out of, what he, um, out, out of which he acts in everything that he does. And while I would agree with that, I would say that's an oversimplification of the fullness of who God is. You see, if you, if you work that same scenario back and, and you have a different definition of what love is, then it changes. So when you apply the idea of love that is not defined as self-fulfillment or an emotional state of, of happiness, but love as a gracious action towards others, then this picture changes slightly but significantly. In this scenario, using the same word love, it means that God is eternally existing in this place for the good of the other members of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is acting justly towards the others. Each member of the Trinity is pursuing closeness and friendship and exhibiting trustworthiness. Each member of the Trinity is outwardly expressive of the value that they place on the other. It's not just an eternal emotional state of happiness and bliss. That they are actually pursuing one another in loving action and relationship when it's just the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit linked an eternal loving action towards one another. So here we see God existing with loving action towards the others. Now, now if that first scenario is true, that God is just sort of experiencing an emotional state of happiness in eternity past before there were objects of wrath or objects of, of justice or a need for those things, then does that mean that God is somehow changing, that he's not immutable? In other words, 
if you follow the logic of that first scenario where people say that, that love is, a, is, is an experiential state of happiness and self-fulfillment, what you end up with is saying that God somehow was lacking in experience and somehow lacking in some of the other qualities that were then added to God that he learned through the creation of humans or through the creation itself. Did not God possess justice before humans existed? Was he not holy before there was space for him to be holy in? Was he not eternally merciful? That, is that a skill that he learned? Do you see what that does? When all of a sudden we define love in the wrong way, then, it, then the nature of God gets tweaked and changed, and now God is sort of learning, and we're sort of learning with him, and, and he's adding to himself justice and adding to himself mercy, things that he could not have had to experience beforehand. But all of those things were packed in the nature and character of God from the beginning. He does not change. He's immutable. So here we see God existing with loving action towards the others. It, it cannot be understated how much this shifts the experience of love. Listen, when love is defined as the pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment, it becomes a moving target based upon the subjective experience of the lover. I, love is now this thing that's based upon how I'm feeling about it in the moment, rather than an objective pursuit of loving actions and graciousness towards others. When love is defined as an outward action, taken by the lover, it changes the way in which we pursue love. Not only that, but guys, we want to see God in his fullness. And when people say that God is only love, they leave out all the other things that God actually is. God is also holy. You know, in eternity, in heaven, when we, when we see in Revelation the, the angels and the nations gathered around the throne, they're not, they're not singing love, love, love. They're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is also righteous. God is also just. He does what is right. He makes things right. God is sometimes grieved. The Bible talks about in several places how, how something grieved him at his heart. God is also angry. As a matter of fact, I would say that the full range of human emotions that you and I experience in life are reflective of who God is because we are made in the image and the likeness of God. So then, philosophically, people say that God is love. And most of the time, I think people are well-intended. I, I think culturally, the idea of a loving God is easier to embrace, and they, they, they feel like this magnifies God. The problem is, is that it undercuts the preaching of the gospel in a huge, huge way. To not understand that God is holy and just, that he's not just loving, To understand that he is holy and just informs us of why we need saving in the first place. So, where does this come in Scripture? Some people believe it not just philosophically, but they also believe it because of Scriptures. Well, there's several places, but I, I think probably the most prominent ones are places like 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, 
verses 7 and 8. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, taken just in that small window of those two scriptures, it's easy to say, well, God is love. And then we define it by our post-enlightenment perspective that we're supposed to live in this perpetual state of happiness and enjoying the people around us and not grieved by sin and not struggling with the injustices of the world and not we're just supposed to live in this pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment but is that the kind of love that God has Another one, first John, or excuse me, in John 3:16, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so you will hear people talking about the love of God and, and defining God as only being love. And they'll, they'll quote a scripture like that and say, Look, for God so loved the world. He's not angry at sin, he's not mad at sin. There is no wrath. There is no sense of justice needing to be fulfilled. His default setting is love towards the world. I think another place that this comes up is in Exodus chapter 34, where Moses is on the mountain and and he says to God, show me your glory. And the Lord passes before him and then says his name. The Lord passed before him, it says, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then most people stop right there. This is the nature of God, they'll say. This is what God is like. He is gracious and loving and steadfast in his kindness towards us and wanting to forgive sin and iniquity. But right after that stop, it says this. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The passage in John chapter 3, verse 16, doesn't just stop there. It, It goes on to talk about why God has loved the world or how God has loved the world. So in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and that the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And if you go down all the way to verse 36 in the same chapter, it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and who does not believe or does not obey, excuse me, the Son, shall not see life, but, now hear this, the wrath of God remains on him. Yes, God is loving. And and loving in his action towards a a God-rejecting and rebellious world. He is loving in his action. He desires for them to be saved. But until they are saved, they are the objects of his wrath. They are storing up judgment. 
because of their sin. Because God is not just love, he is also just. He cannot only be defined in terms of loving happiness or the pursuit of happiness or some emotional state of enjoyment. No, because he is loving towards, his actions are love towards humanity. When someone is wounded through injustice, he makes it right. He extracts justice as a consequence. And for every sinful action that creates harm in the world, there is a judgment that is appropriate to that sinful action. God is not just love. He is also just. In 1 John chapter 4, Going back to our passage there. The whole context of the letter is a warning. Over and over again, he's, he's warning believers how to know whether or not they are in loving relationship with God. And he says, like, don't pretend you don't have sin. <laughs> because if you pretend you don't have sin, then you're, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. And you're, you're not pursuing the, the truth of God, which he says you have sin. Now, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. He already paid for those sins, right? So the acknowledgement, God, this is all of who I am. The full package is all right here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all out in front of me. I'm not hiding anything. That, that place of transparency, God says, I'll defend you all day long. The blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But the person who hides their sin, he says, no, man. You're not living in truth and in reality. There's a consequence for that. He says, hey, listen, you can't say that you love God and also love the world that is at war with God. You can't say that. He says, not only that, but... You can't say you love God and not love your brother. Right here in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now notice how he defines it. You ready? In this, the love of God was made manifest or made known among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Question. Propitiation means satisfaction for our sins. Who is being satisfied for our sins? God, the one who will judge the living and the dead, the one who is righteous and true and holy and just and pure. See, defining God in terms of love only negates this whole other area of life where we have to deal with how our, how our sin affects us and the world around us. So in every passage that talks about the love of God, it also talks about the other aspects of God's nature. He's not just compassionate, but he will by no means clear the guilty. It's not just that he loves the world, but the world is under the wrath of God and he's trying to save them. God is love. But see, love demands also justice. They are interlinked. They cannot be separated. The easiest proof of that is to look in homes, right? 
homes that seem very loving but offer no discipline? Is that loving? What's the outcome of that? It's usually quite tragic, right? See, love without guidelines, love without limits is not love. It's actually abuse. It's actually a neglecting of justice and a neglecting of love. See, God is not one-dimensional. We all know this by instinct and through our experiences with one another. And the Bible clearly teaches that God loves the world. John 3.16, right? God spared wicked Nineveh, bringing them to repentance in Jonah 3. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.32. That's a, a quote from Scripture. I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He is patient to an extreme, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is all proof of love. God wants what is best for his creation. And at the same time, concurrent with that, Psalm 5, 5 is also true. In which it says, you hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, 5 is even harsher. It says, the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. God is angry at sin. He hates what it does to those he loves. You know, in my season as a youth pastor, I loved every kid. Every kid that came through, okay. I loved every kid most of the time. That's a better way to say that. There were some that I wrestled with that sometimes. But I'll tell you, though I loved every kid that was a part of our youth group and my time in youth ministry, I loved my kids differently. You see, they have access to my heart differently. Matter of fact, I could say right now, you know, we, we live kind of off in the, the Charles Point apartments. There's like 50,000 people that live there. And, you know, I could say, I love everybody in the apartments. How many of them I, am I going to have over for, for, for dinner? Not very many. <laughs> right? My attitude towards them is one of love and wanting good for them and those kinds of things. But does everybody get access to me? No, I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the capacity for that. I reserve what is loving from the heart for the places where it is best spent. Matter of fact, I could say to you guys, I, I love everyone at this church, but listen, the way that I love my family, the way that I love my friends is different than the way that I love you. There's an access that they have to the deepest parts of my heart that is reserved for the safety of close relationship. There is differentiation. You see, and, and, and this is why it's so important to understand that God is not love only because, because when we mess with that idea, it messes with our understanding of relationships. So I'm going I'm to give you two things to take note of today. And I, I want to ask this question. Why is the truth about God's love better than the myth? Why is the truth about God's love better than the myth? Two things I want you to see. Rightly understanding the love of God models healthy relationships. That's the first one. Rightly understanding the love of God models healthy relationships. Listen, rightly understanding the love of God helps us to be able to set appropriate boundaries in our lives, personally. We can love everyone, but we don't give access to everyone or share the deepest parts of our hearts 
with everyone. We save and reserve those treasured places for the closest relationships. We have to. I, I think of the many examples in the news and in the media of places where because love is poorly defined, there is a lack of discernment. Sometimes that happens in ministry environments. In the name of being loving, there's no restraint placed on anybody. And as a result, pastors drive it in the ditch. They go amok. There's no boundaries or limitations placed on them. I think of families where there are no limits, where it's an open home. And in the name of being loving, everybody can come in, everybody has access, and the kinds of abuses that happen in that, in that environment are prolific. Matter of fact, I know of several ministry households that in the name of loving God have failed to be protective and give priority to the most vital relationships by guarding their own kids and family and, and have suffered all kinds of abuses as a consequence of that because they did not have limits. They didn't have layered relationships that were mature. So it, a, a love that is like God's gives priority to vital relationships. Listen, God loves the world. He wants everybody to be saved, but the way he thinks about his adopted family is different. Do you see that? The access that his family has to him is different than the access that the world has to him, has to God. In John 17, when Jesus is praying, he, he says, I'm praying for these, my disciples. And he says, not for the world, but for those that you have given me. He makes a differentiation. Special prayer, special intercession taking place for those that are his. There's an access to God that believers have who've been brought into the family through the gospel. And those that are outside of faith in Jesus do not have the same access to God. They are outside of that loving relationship. They are still gathering judgment and wrath from a righteous and holy God who will set things right. Listen, either judgment will be poured out on you personally for your sins or judgment will be poured out upon Jesus on behalf of you for your sins. But the righteousness of God demands that justice be met. See, God gives priority to vital relationships. And God also, listen, also gives boundaries to unhealthy relationships. Believers are on the outside because God wants them to know that they are on the outside. That they've been invited in, that they, but there is a difference. They're not a part of the family. They're not saved. And he needs them to know that because how else will they be saved? There has to be a limitation there. There has to be a differentiation. Second thing. Having a good, having a good definition of love motivates preaching the gospel. Listen, rightly understanding the love of God motivates us to preach to people that should repent and turn to Jesus. You see, without the wrath of God, there is no need to repent. A gospel that poorly defines the love of God will not, cannot call people to repentance. And one of the things that I think sometimes I'm afraid of as a pastor is like, and, and I feel the weight of this even here today, is like I don't want to diminish the love of God because his love is amazing. 
But I, I don't want to leave it to just that because there are some people even here, even now, even at this moment, who are living in active rebellion against God and think that in the name of God's love that they're okay. They think that everything's fine because God is love, right? It's not fine. You're on the outside. You're in rebellion against him, and you have to repent. You have to. There is no other option. There is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And you have one response to what he's done for you, and that is believe and repent. Turn away from your sin. Obey Jesus and come under his authority. You see, when I understand that the wrath of God is real, that the justice of God demands judgment, then all of a sudden the people who are lost and perishing, I am broken over it. I can't, I can't hold it back. I have to tell them, brother, sister, friend, co-worker, listen, I enjoy this relationship with God where I don't have to fear him. You know why? Because Jesus took the penalty for my sin, and that's the only way I've ever been able to have a relationship with God. That's it. I could never climb my way of spirituality and, and, and become disciplined enough or, or be holy enough or do enough good things. The only way that I could ever come to God is because he sent his son, and, and I just want you to know, until you see that, you'll never get to God either. I can remember a moment where uh, a long time ago, you know, I grew up in the country. I grew up in the sticks. We had a 175-acre ranch that I, uh, I grew up on. And um, in that uh, environment, you know, we were basically like uh, Huck and, and Tom, you know, just like running around and being crazy. And, and I've always thought to myself, I would never, ever live in a city. I just never do that. Like, I loved my childhood. I loved growing up in the wild. I love the woods. I love killing things. It's just like, I don't know, it's a part of how I'm put together, right? Okay, but listen, um, about 12 years ago, I was driving through Portland with some friends, and we, it was late at night. We are coming back after a, a big worship concert that was there at the, the Rose Garden, and we ended up on some weird side streets, and now we're running, like, the waterfront, and there's, like, all these bars that run the waterfront, right? And I'm, as we're driving by, there's, like, prostitutes and drug addicts and, like, like the, the worst of the worst. It's, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're driving by, and I'm, I'm looking at it. And my, again, my context is Cave Junction at that time. That's when I'm living, right, where there's a grand total of like 14 people and, right? Uh, there's definitely a need for the gospel in that place, but it's, it's not as concentrated as what you see in a city. And I'm, I'm driving by and, and meant tears just started rolling down my cheeks. I just thought, man, there are thousands and thousands of people who do not know Jesus. And they are perishing. And the wrath of God is on them. And there is a simple, simple fix. Embrace Jesus. You see, when I understand the love of God and why he sent his son in his loving action towards us. Then all of a sudden, I find myself motivated in the same way, right? I start to see the world that is perishing around me, and I go, man, how can I stand by and watch people march off into hell unknowingly? I have to tell them about Jesus.
I have to tell them the cure. And woe to me if I don't. See, this is the gospel. God took gracious and loving action towards his enemies in sending his son to bear the consequence for their sins on the cross. And those enemies have the opportunity not only to be forgiven, but to be adopted into the family of God and to grow in ever-increasing depth of relationship with a God who is righteous and holy and loving. God is love, but he's not love only. Amen? I'm going to invite Anthony to come back and lead us in worship. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer? Father, we want to see you in all that you are. We don't want to know you simply as we prefer. I think we, we don't want to create you in the image that we want you to be in, but we want to know you as you are. So God, thank you for giving us the revelation of your word. Thank you for defining for us that you are both loving and just. Thank you, God, that you will be the one who shows compassion and mercy and yet at the same time are the just one who will by no means clear the guilty. You exemplify for us what love is and you show us how to demonstrate and take gracious and loving action even towards our enemies and yet at the same time, Father, you tell us that there is a limit to the relationships around us. God, help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to mirror that and give access to those who are safe to give access to. Father, let your word dwell in us and let your love flow from us. Thank you for saving us through your son. As we worship you in the receiving of tithes and offerings and in the singing of worship, God, I pray that our hearts would be united with yours and that once again we would find ourselves broken at the idea of what you've done in giving your son. That our worship would come springing up from our souls, realizing not only that you love us, but that we have been delivered from the wrath of God. So Father, have your way. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every